Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives when his disciples came to him and asked him, what will be the sign of your coming? And instead of a date or an exact checklist, Jesus gave them a description of the future that was to come. He gave them warnings to heed about the temptations his people would face, and he gave them examples to follow to teach them how they should wait. He taught them that the Son of Man will arrive unexpectedly, that he will return in surprising glory at a time that nobody is able to predict. Like a servant who doesn't know when his master will be back to check on him, like a sheep who doesn't know when the shepherd will return, Jesus told his disciples that we can't prepare for him to return at a certain time. Instead, he instructed them to be ready for his return at all times. Our Savior made a promise. The dawn is coming. And our teacher gave us a warning. Are you ready? I think God has a way of orchestrating things that are beyond our ability to think in such brilliant ways. And that today's sermon falls on the Sunday prior to Thanksgiving because I believe uh, this text today connects us to what it means to truly be thankful. And uh, so this series, if you're new here, I just want to get you caught up. We began a series on September 11th out of the text of Matthew 24 and 25, which is the Olivet Discourse. Uh, basically, Jesus had spent, he'd come into Jerusalem that you know, epic week of when he is going to die on the cross. He's going to raise from the dead on the third day. Earlier in that week, though, he had a moment in the temple courts with the religious leaders, exchanging uh, understandings about scripture, and then communicating that some things are going to happen that they're not going to like, including the destruction of the temple. When leaving that, that occasion and walking up the hill of the Mount of Olives, which overlooks Jerusalem, Jesus sits down on top, taking a break, and his disciples, some of them, come to him and ask him this, these two questions. When will this happen? In other words, when will the, the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your return and the end of time? And so what we get now in Matthew 20, chapters 24 and 25, it's also found in Luke 21. It's also in the book of Mark. Um, is, God, is Jesus responding to this question of, when will the temple be destroyed and what will be the signs of his coming, his return? Because he claimed after he ascended into heaven, after he'd raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven and telling them, I will come back and he will come and collect those that are his. And so we've been in a waiting mode since that time, but yet a waiting mode that's not being passive, but it's actually a season of time where we're called to live out with expectancy. And so what Jesus actually does in responding to those two questions is he gives a lot of signs as to what will happen preceding his return. But then he concludes with multiple parables that help us understand how to live until he comes back. Because he acknowledges that it's going to come later than you expect, yet at a time when you may not be ready. So he's preparing them for a length of time, but yet at a time when they do not know. And so there's this idea of expectancy that the church is supposed to live with. And so today, we're going to look at the third parable. 
So the first parable we spoke on last week, which is a parable about until he comes back, we have a, a responsibility of living out a life that reflects Jesus. And, and because it has an impact on other people. Because the one thing Jesus did say in Matthew 24, 14, is that his return will happen when the good news of Jesus Christ has been shared to every tribe and every nation. And so we know that God wants our lives to be message bearers to other people. And so in the first parable, he talks about that. And then talks about how he despises hypocrisy. Because both our words... And our actions communicate what we think. And if our words and our actions are not in operation together, it creates a, a very distorted understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and so we heard about how hypocrisy last week is something that, that can become such a hindrance. And so we have to work on those things in our lives. The second parable was actually what we spoke on on September 11th. It's the parable about uh, the ten virgins, where they're waiting for uh, the bridegroom to come. That parable basically is speaking about that we are to live our lives prepared always because he will come at a time we do not expect. All right, so that's the second parable. First parable is, again, don't live hypocritically because our, mass, our message of word and deed matters. Second parable says, I'm going to come anytime, so play the long game. Play the long game in that you do not know when, so operate as if it could happen today, that you're always ready. The third parable we're going to get at today is found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. And it, it is leading us to what it means to steward each and every day we're given. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 25. We're going to be in verses 14 to 30. And if you do not have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one. We also use what is called the YouVersion Bible app. And you can use that now. And if you go into that app, go to the Events tab. On the events tab, you'll see our church listed, and just tap on that, and you'll get all the passages that we have or that we're using today. So let's begin. We're going to read in verses 14 to 30, and keep in mind, this falls immediately after the story of the ten virgins. Okay, so verse 14 says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will now put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came and said, master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will now put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. 
Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out, hid your, bag, hid your gold in the ground, and see, here it is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked and lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So that take the bag of gold from, that, from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have it in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so... For those of us that are familiar with scripture, this is a parable that is well known to us. Most of us would understand it's a pretty simple, straightforward text. That God gives us things, and that with those things, we're to be faithful with it, and then be able to show that we've done something with it. It doesn't just sit. The problem is, we typically take the meaning of this parable out of its context, and we miss out on some important uh, substance, and I would say the spirit of the application gets lost. Let me begin with the very first word in verse 14, when it says, again, again it will be like a man going on a journey. That word again in the Greek is the word gar, which most often translated means for. Well, you're going to find that if you were to look up all the major translations that are in English, that again is chosen by three translations. Four is translated by all but three others out of the 30 that I looked at. But in this particular meaning, when you go into the Greek of this, it's meaning that it's a continuation of the thought in the previous parable. So if you use the word for it doesn't necessarily strike you so hard that you need to connect it to the prior parable. So I found that probably the best way to translate this, where our minds would immediately connect those dots, is the translation from the Phillips translation, which is commonly used in England. And this translation says, similarly. So similarly, it will be like a man going on a journey. We hear that, we're thinking, well, What's it connecting to? What's it similar to? So, for, or again, or similarly, it will be like a man going on a journey, so similar to the parable just read. Now, what you also need to connect is it says, similarly, or again, or for, it will be like a man going on a journey. Well, well what is it? You have to go back to verse 1 in the previous parable. When it says, at that time... The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. Now read verse 14. Again, it will be like. So it is referring to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven in this context is referring to Jesus coming back. So, or Jesus coming. So as it says in verse 1, when the kingdom of heaven, or when Jesus comes, it will be like, and then explains like a marriage analogy. In verse 14, it's saying, again, similarly, 
It will, Jesus' coming will be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants who are entrusted, who he entrusts his wealth to them. So context is super important. That in this text, this particular parable, he is saying, Jesus is coming back. His coming will be like this coming or this parable that you're about to read. And in this parable, another thing needs to be defined. How many of you in your translations that you have in your lap right now, your English translation, that the word talent was what was used? Okay, a good number of you. How many of you had the bags of gold? All right. Any of you have bags of silver? Okay. So, which is accurate? Because it seems to be quite a variance, right? The word talent to the word bags of gold to bags of silver. Well, in the Greek, this word is talenton. And talenton translates to talent. But you and I use that word for skill or ability. And that can have some level of accuracy to it, but it doesn't convey all that this word was meant by the readers of that time. Talenton or talent was referring to a bag of money, and specifically a bag of silver. So, why in the world would uh, NIV use bag of gold? Because bag of gold means something to us as extremely valuable. A lot of money. So a bag of gold, a lot of money. And so the, the translators were trying to pull that out. The very simplistic translation is talent, but that doesn't get us there either. So the translation that's most often used that would use the translation, I'm sorry, the, the actual version that actually translates this bag of silver that's fairly common is the New Living Translation which typically we would not usually credit for having the most accurate view on the Greek. But in this case, it is. It is the most descriptive as to what the original reader would have received. So they would have understood that when Jesus is talking about five talents, two talents, and one talent, that it's referring to one talent being a bag of silver that would weigh somewhere between 50 to 80 pounds and be the equivalent of about 20 years worth of wages. Okay, now see how something spoken to first gen kind of loses some of its power to us? Because we just look at it and we compare five to two to one. And we're just like, ah, you know, so it's a bag of money. Well, it wasn't just any bag of money. I mean, we're talking 20 years worth of income is a single talent. So then you look at it like, even the person who received one was given a tremendous entrustment to have to steward. And then you look at, then there was somebody with two talents, 40 years worth, which is now, that's about the entire equivalent of a working amount of years for all of us. You know, you work about 40 years, and, and so it's like, okay, so an entire lifetime of work is being given to that middle person. But the person that received five, he was receiving something the equivalent of 100 years worth of income. This is an insane amount of money that's being given to all three of these servants. 
Now, you also need to take note that in these parables, there's things that can kind of be understood in this. So this master had servants. Therefore, prior relationship, prior knowledge, prior understanding of each of these servants. So it would make sense why one received five, one received two, one received one. That there was knowledge that was pre-understood, premeditated, that could be carried into the disbursement of these funds. So now, with those definitions there that were in the context of Jesus is saying, it will be like when I return a master who has left on a long trip that has left an insane amount of wealth to three servants. How those three servants handle their wealth, the entrustment of that, how they steward that, will be somebody that will either rise at the point of my return or fall at the point of my return. Changes a little bit our understanding of this parable, doesn't it? It's significant. So let's look at verse 14, the beginning of it. So again, it will be like a man going on a journey who has called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. So from here on, I'm going to project into this what Jesus is implying, that the master is Jesus and that the servants are people that are following after the master and given an entrustment. So, having a look at verse 14, it says that until Jesus returns, you and I are entrusted with what belongs to him. Until Jesus returns, you and I are entrusted with what belongs to him. It's not ours. How many times have you and I might have said this statement? I thank you, God, for all that you've given me. I thank you for the blessings of this past year. We're going to pray those prayers on Thursday, right? Thank you. We acknowledge, God, that the provisions we've had received, we've made it through this year, that there's much to be thankful to God for. Because I think in that statement, we, think, we acknowledge God is the provider of all good things. He is. But here's the challenge. We pray that, and we believe it to be true, but do we apply it? Because when God starts to ask us, now I need to use some of the wealth I've given you, and I need you to use it for furthering my purposes, then all of a sudden, we go white-knuckled over what he's given us. Because let's look at what he entrusts with to us. So what all does God entrust to us that he's referring to in verse 14? Well, money. He entrusts money to us. He entrusts skills and talents because he's admitting that I disperse based on capacity and capability. So there's talents and skills, yes. But there's also people. He entrusts people to us. We refer to this term called oikos here in, at LAFC because it's part of the Greek that was used in writing the New Testament. And that term was used to refer to a sphere of influence, our relational world. That we, say, we can see from Scripture that it's acknowledging God has placed you and I, each of us, into a unique oikos or a unique relational world where you might be the only one that knows Jesus in that oikos or in that sphere of influence. So there's an entrustment. Some of those people in my oikos know Jesus. Some of the people in my oikos do not. But I'm entrusted with them all. 
Moving on, verse 15 says that our ability dictates how much God entrusts to us. It's true that there are people with great resources that don't use it well. But it's also true that God keeps giving resources to people when they are faithful to him. And he's like, I know I can keep giving to them and they will use it well. I mean, think about how this happens in the workplace. If you're a supervisor and you have the opportunity to promote somebody, are you going to promote somebody that in their lower capacity and their less sphere of influence, but they struggle with leading in that smaller context, would you promote them to a bigger context? No. You would not until they've shown that they can handle that which is already underneath them. So true it is the same with God. He knows us. He knows the capacities. So he entrusts more to those who have the capacity to do more. He, you know, gives less to some that, that can do a lot with it. Again, can even double it, but can't do as much as the other. But he gives something to everyone, and it's a lot. Even to the faithless servant, he gave a lot to him. So our ability does dictate how much God entrusts. But it's also true that good stewards, once they've received that entrustment, operate immediately with confidence and without hesitation. Now, it's not to say that there isn't some level of insecurity, because I think that even happens. But they confidently know that they've been given an entrustment. And it says in the text in verse 16, at once they went out and began to make it work. The doubling didn't happen immediately. It happens over time. But at once, the investment is growing. Because there's investment. It's being multiplied. Now I want to acknowledge here that when it talks about the person who received five and the person who received two talents each, they both doubled what they received. Both were equally successful. Okay, so we tend to look at the one that had five that made it five more or ten as being more successful than the one who had two that made it four. The reality is, is they were both equally successful, both doubling what they had been given as an entrustment. But then there's the poor steward. The poor steward is one who has little regard for what they've been given. Somewhere along the line, even with what we've been given, and maybe there was a point in time where you would have said, yes, this came from God, or, or this child's a blessing from God. My wife is a blessing from God. My job is a blessing from God. That friend is a blessing from God. And then somewhere along the line, it starts becoming, that's my family. That's my job. That is my friend. And I'm not going to use it to the glory of God. The poor steward is one who had little regard that everything that was given was a, a part of the owner. He owned it. It was a gift, and it was extravagantly given. To have hi, hid it, um, this, this single, again, 20 years worth of income, to have hidden it under a tree or whatever, you're, you're seeing here that, that the many commentarians say that culturally to have done that is to suggest he does not want to use it and acknowledge that it doesn't belong to him. Because if he was to give it to a bank to earn interest, as Jesus implied in this, you have to acknowledge that the money is actually belonging to somebody else. But if you hide it, then when he 
If he doesn't return, then guess what? It's just you. It's just yours. And you start to claim it. This poor steward also had a low view of God. I mean, look at it. It's like, it's making the statement. It's like, you are a hard man. You harvest where you have not sown. You've reaped where you've not, you know, sown those seeds. It's basically saying, you know, upon our backs, we've made this happen. It's really to credit us. Forget the fact that that opportunity would have never happened had the master not given them a deposit. We see this happen all the time in culture, in sports, where all of a sudden the one at the lower part starts claiming, really, it's to credit me. In the end of the day, an athlete can't do what they're doing unless people are crazed about that sport and give money to it. And they cannot find their payment happening to them unless there are owners saying, I'm willing to give it. In our businesses, our, our workers somehow start to think that, hey, the credit really belongs to us. The owner shouldn't be making the money because they're not doing the hard work. It's human. It's very human that our sinful tendencies begin to say, we take the credit for all that we've received. The beginning, the middle, and the end is, to do, is due to us and to credit us. Which is why I believe it ends with a statement that is not positive. In fact, it's disowning of the, the final steward. But a couple more things about the good steward. First of all, the good stewards were able, were given the opportunity because they were faithful with little. Again, it's part of the journey. Talked about that. We're given more when we're shown faithful with what we have already have. God does the same thing with us. He gives us more as we are faithful with what we already have. And as a result, as it says in 21 and 23, there will be mutual delight between God and the servant who is operating in mission and good investment and good stewardship of what God has given. It says, come and enjoy your master's happiness. There will be joy for the servant that was found faithful and acknowledges faithful. And God is even saying, and I will be joyful because you are faithful with what I gave you. But the poor steward... Verses 28 to 30 speaks things that's honestly very difficult to want to preach. When it says that the person who was given that, again, a significant amount of money, one bag, who hid it, who did not own up to God being generous, and that began to see it as entitled and theirs, and was too afraid to live it out. God says, that one will be cast out. I don't even know him. And they will spend eternity in a place that's called a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Which is another description of hell itself. Because there is no faith here. The person who chose to not steward what God has given. And to call God a hard God. And to say the things that I have are due to my own hard work, not from you. That's a person who has no faith. But I believe this leads us to a couple or three primary points of accountability. So if Jesus is saying, the person who will be ready when I return is the one who has stewarded well the things I've entrusted to them. We need to look then at the three primary things I said at the beginning of this sermon 
and look at them and apply it then to our hearts and check our hearts to see, are we stewarding that which God has given us well? The first one being this. We are given a trust from God to use our money towards kingdom things. We're given a trust from God to use our money towards kingdom things. Tithe is a given. Both Old and New Testament mentions 10%. God just says, take that off the top, give that to me so I can use those for kingdom things. But it doesn't stop there. What about generosity? What about generosity? Generosity isn't in the 10%. That's, that's a given. What about your 90%? How are you blessing others with your 90% in a way that points them to Jesus? If Jesus says, I'm giving you each and every day till I come so that more can come to know him and that those who know him can come to know him more, how are we using our 90% to then bless others in a way that points them to Jesus? Again, I'm not even talking the tithe. I'm talking the generosity side. Number two, God expects us to utilize and steward our skills and talents to serve his kingdom work here on this earth. God didn't just give you the abilities you have so that you can build a nice house, live a nice life, and be able to have something to pass on maybe to the next generation. That's all good. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it. But what if God has given you your abilities so that you can steward it so that others can come closer to Jesus? What you are good at came from God. He knit you in your, his, in your mother's womb to be wired the way you're wired, to be utilized the way you're being utilized. Not so you can just grow a nice life here, but so that Jesus can move his name into more and more hearts. So how does your skill set, your wirings, get used to benefit the church? And I'm not just talking LEFC. The church is much bigger than just this campus and this group of people. The church is God's kingdom here on this earth. What are you doing to steward your giftedness to benefit his work here on this earth? Then lastly, God has entrusted you with people. Some of those people need Jesus. They don't even know him yet. Some of those people in your life know them already, but they need to know them more. How do you steward your life relationally where when you come into relationship with the other brothers and sisters in Christ, that the, your presence among them spurs them on to pursuing Jesus more? Or how does your life, when, you, when you're living around those who don't know Jesus at all, how does your life get lived as salt and light where they taste of something and that saltiness draws them in or that light points to something that recognizes the source of your life as something else. Because I honestly believe this next question matters. Should God see you as one who will steward relationships well? In other words, should God entrust you with more people in your life who need to know Jesus more or needs to know Jesus at all. God has given us the gift of these relationships. And we're called to steward them. It's an entrustment.
And it would be a shame if on the day Christ returns, that people that have been in relationship with you for years discover who Jesus really is because he shows up, but they did not know him. Yet you knew him for all your life. This is what it looks like when Jesus says, similarly, I'll be coming at a time you do not expect. Will you find me pleased with all that I've entrusted you? Let's pray. So God, you've given us much. Yes, you've given us wealth. We live in a fantastic country where we've been given so much. Yes, you've given us each talents skills and abilities. And yes, you've given us people. People that benefit our lives. People that bless us. But Lord, are we using our resources, both our financial and our giftedness, (laughs) to serve your work here on this earth so that people can know Jesus? And are we truly, with the people you've entrusted to us, nurturing the blessings we've received? so that they can know that there is an incredible God who loves us and is extravagant in what he gives. God, provoke our hearts because we want to be ready for when you come. Provoke our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. What a challenge. Father God has entrusted us with many things to be stewarded. I think beginning with the very breath that we breathe. And so we're going to ask you to join us in stewarding our breath, giving it back to him as we end this service. Would you stand on your feet and join us in singing? Let's lift this up with a bold voice, a sacrifice of praise to our God. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. And great are you, Lord. Let's sing it now, come on. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out
Isn't that kind of where it begins? Our very breath doesn't happen but by God's will. So is there anything we can truly claim as our own that hasn't started from being the gift of God? So when we go before our families on Thursday and we say, thank you, God, Realize that for every single thing we thank him for is an entrustment from God to steward. And when we steward it to his glory and we use it to his glory, then it doesn't matter what day he comes. We'll be thrilled and we'll hear him say, come and enjoy my happiness. That's why Jesus shared this. Because he knows there's a time, there's a space that is going to be between his saying this and his return. And he doesn't want us to be found where we're looking at him like in shock and horror that he showed up. But we can just say, Lord, while you're away, you did this through me. This is yours. It's all yours. And thanksgivings are opportunity to be able to just say thank you, but to also acknowledge it's a gift that I must steward. If you'd like to pray with someone, we'll have people in the encounter room to be glad to pray with you, talk with you about some of these things. I'll be up front as well. We'd love to talk to you. We just want to keep promoting Jesus in these halls. Jesus changes lives. And he's coming again. Anytime, and we want you to be ready. So if you don't know Jesus, be ready. If you know Jesus, be ready. He's coming back. Amen. You're dismissed.